Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. hillsdale.edu slash vdh. <laughs> Hello, ladies, and hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Happy New Year to everyone. Victor Davis Hanson is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. We have a lot to talk about today, and we're going to start off with meritocracy. We're going to get to that right after these important messages. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, They've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. 
Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash VICTOR50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com slash Victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-5-0, and use the code Victor50, that's code Victor50, at factormeals.com slash Victor50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. We're back with the Victor Davis Hansen Show. My friend, um, you know, normally, Victor, we read comments at the end of the podcast, and they're normally comments that are laudatory or have worthwhile things to say. But there's a comment that, that came up last week that I think is important. I'm going to read it and get your thoughts on it, because it really is a, is an important and almost a frightening issue. And it's, I don't know the name of the person that wrote this. It's uh, read the subject. I don't blame him or her for using a different name. And it's titled meritocracy versus Qu quota, quotocracy. So let me uh, indulge me, indulge us uh, listeners, because it, it's important to hear this and, and hear Victor's reaction. Uh, hello, I uh, will preface this with a heartfelt thank you to BDH and his host for creating such a wonderful podcast, etc., etc. Now on to my comment. I feel it necessary to mention that our meritocracy is on life support, if not already gone. I'm a military dentist, and I was a 2020 graduate of dental school. Both the undergraduate university and dental school that I attended still gave grades and class ranks as of 2020, but there is a push in undergraduate and postgraduate education to do away with grades as a measure of competence. As a matter of fact, schools like Harvard School of Dental Medicine utilize a pass-fail grading system. In 2012, the National Board Dental Examination, a standardized exam that all dental students must take to qualify for state licensure, was changed to pass-fail with the ability to simply retake the exam if you fail. This is also the case with individual state licensure examinations. I know of no student during my tenure to fail out of school, as you are given the chance to recycle classes if somehow you do receive a failing credit. I can think of only two students that did not graduate after they were accepted. And in both cases, each student had multiple criminal charges accumulate before their dismissal. In reality, the filter between the licensed dental health care provider and the dental school applicant 
is the school's board of admissions. And it seems there is a trend in university admissions to satisfy DEI quotas over merit-based applications. I fear that sacrificing meritocracy directly impacts the quality and quantity of healthcare available to the public. Victor, uh, this is about teeth and damn teeth are important, but I have to believe that the same trend that read the subject is telling us about uh, happening in dental schools is happening in other fields where we're going to say, geez, I don't want that person performing brain surgery on me. And we, we, we've talked about this, that in the 90s, 80s, 70s, we we said affirmative action, everybody praises it in the bicoastal elite community, but they're not stupid enough to apply it to doctors, surgeons, nuclear plant operators, United Airlines pilots, etc. They, they are now. United has a, I think it's 50% of their trainees will have to be diverse. So now we're doing this. It's not proportional representation in med schools. It's repertory, compensatory admissions. In other words, the African-American and the Latino old quota is now beyond their numbers in the demographic, I guess, to make up for systemic racism or whatever Mr. Kendi and others call it. Okay. But I think everybody's under the impression that just affects emissions. No, that's when the problem starts, not when it ends. The problem is that these universities were set up on meritocratic bases, not racial bases. So if you want to go to UC Berkeley's medical school or you go to Stanford's medical school, you will see Asian Americans, Chinese Americans, Korean Americans, Japanese Americans, Southeast Asian Americans, Indian overrepresented. I don't like that word. That's theirs, not mine, in the general demographic because of excellence and preparation on as distinguished by GPA, at, you know, quantifiably good high um, colleges, SAT, MCAT, all of this stuff. And then you throw that out. And what do you do when you you admit people that can't perform at that standard because they're not as well prepared? Okay, so what do you do? And we talked about this in relation to Stanford's release just, I think, two or three weeks ago, that 23% of the incoming class are white, which means about 12%, if that, white male, you take away legacies. And there's no white work. For all practical purposes, there's no meritocratic white male working class student at Stanford anymore. You can't, it's, they're just not allowed to be on campus. So what do you do? You adjust the course content for people who were admitted that would not have earned admission on the old standards? Or do you, or do you change the grading system? And the answer is you do both. And they're finding out, Jack, that in medical schools like undergraduate institutions, if you inflate the grading system, it's still not enough. Um, it's still not enough. So you have to go to a pass-fail. And that's what we're, we're seeing at Cornell. We're seeing at the New School in New York. There's an effort to say, once we have students that we admitted for 
non-quantifiable criteria that we feel that they're victims of systemic racism and they're actually very brilliant and they haven't been able to show that because all of the testing and grades and the society at large is racist but once they get on campus in this nurturing embryo they will excel okay they haven't excelled so then you attack the system on campus as being biased and then ultimately to get the results that you want that people graduate then you have to go to pass fail and more importantly is what we're seeing on universities that's not being discussed is the collapse between admissions and graduation. They're now synonymous. In other words, when a student is admitted to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, law school, business school, med school, if they have these graduate programs, then that is a birthright to guaranteed graduation. And to guarantee that student graduation, then you have to do what we're talking about lower the exams and then the next thing remember it's a chain reaction jack you destroy the admissions criteria then you have students there on campus physically so then you have to accommodate them by destroying the grading system and then you go to professional schools you have to destroy the admissions to professional schools then when they're in professional schools you got to destroy the grading system and then what well then you, the ultimate apparition of wokeism is you destroy the licensing boards and they're already going after the bar exams they're already going after the medical licensing exams and the net result of it is that we're a tribal society this is what distinguishes america and the west in general from everywhere else in the world we were a multiracial society under one culture but we don't hire our first cousins as they do in much of the Middle East. We don't say that this clan will be first in line. We just, we let it go. And so if you've got 75% of the NFL is African-American, more power to, to, to African-American athletes. We don't say, well, this is unfair to Asians. Why aren't we having Asian quarterbacks? In fact, when we had a few Asian basketball stars in the NFL, the African-Americans, some athletes got very angry and said they're not they're getting too much attention as if they were affirmative action, you know, for crowd purposes. And that's kind of a complaint against the 20 percent or so of white NBA play. Well, they're just there because they're tokens. In other words, the, our professional sports are meritocratic and everybody knows it and they're better off for it. And I don't care what the racial com component is of the league. And apparently they don't either. And it's, you know, it's very funny that we, we have this idea that if you're uh, a popular singer or you're in commercials or you're in a professional sport and you're overrepresented in your demographic, that's fine. That's wonderful. That's diversity even though it's not very diverse. NFL is not diverse. But uh, otherwise, it's unfair. Medical school is not the same. And so it's so contradictory. And so, you know, there's all these demands on we need more black coaches or we need more black basketball coaches. But nobody ever says we need at least 12% African-American coaches to reflect the 12% population. No, they say we need 50%, 60% because we're overrepresented. 
But then no one says, well, if you're overrepresented and you believe in quotas and you believe in affirmative action, then why don't we have more Latino running backs? And where is our Asian sinners? Why don't we give them a chance? And, and the answer is because they didn't make it. They're not as good on the on the floor, on the field. And you say, well, that's your definition of what is good, but you set up the standards. Maybe they're, they have insidious ways, uh, a poor white guy from Appalachia that's five second or something. Maybe he has ways of dribbling or calling plays that you don't appreciate because of your slanted standard. That's where we're going. But it's only one way is what I'm saying. And ultimately, and I think we're seeing it, you know, I keep saying suddenly and then, I mean, gradually and then suddenly. Right. We're starting to see that this has been going on and it was accelerated after George Floyd. And we think there's a lot of rot to, to quote Milton Friedman, who quoted Adam Smith. There's a lot of ruin in a society and, and layer of fat that you can burn. Well, yeah, well, let's look at you yourself, Victor. I mean, you, I know you, you teach at Hillsdale. You've taught every year, but you're, you're regular when you were at Fresno uh, teaching in and out day in and day in, day out. That's two decades ago right so you much much more even then though we you must have been feeling knowing these pressures about say grading and and uh uh the decline in in meritocracy at that point well i mean uh when i started teaching in 1984 i had a syllabus and when i retired in the spring of 2004, that syllabus was one third of the required work of what I had in 2004. Because as the student body profile changed and my grading system stayed the same, I went from, I don't know, 25% A's, 25% B's, 25% C's, 25% D's. I would have been, I don't know, 75% F because we were letting in students from quote unquote underserved communities. And I think now Cal State Fresno, the last statistic I saw is 18% white. Well, I mean, the so-called white community is about 45% of the population. Right. So that's an underserved, but it's not underserved. That's the point. So what I'm getting at is what do you do? So I had some wonderful students that didn't speak English. I mean, they literally didn't speak English. I had a, a guy that I tutored. I, I tutored and, you know, I would find a Spanish word. He'd find an English word. And he was in my Latin class required. He wanted to continue. I had some brilliant minority students that were more than prepared. Best students I've ever had, but the majority of students were from underprepared high schools, and they were not able to do CSU work at the level that was traditionally expected of them. And then we had to lie, and that's why I retired. You just had to lie, and you would ask the administration, we want to know how many special admits you're letting in that do not fulfill the minimum GPA and the minimum SAT score. We want ACT. We want to know who they are, how many of them, so we can we can find out what we're up against. And they wouldn't release the information. And you, we had a group called the group, <laughs> the group quote the <laughs> history professor started, and he said, "Wow, 
he would write an email and he said, do you guys have people in, in your class that are on our eighth grade reading level? And we'd say, yeah, what do you do? What do you do? And then they'd get mad and ask the administrators. And the administrators said, no, we're not getting touching that. We're not going to tell you that. And they just kept admitting, admitting, admitting. And then I had a really wonderful student. He was a great guy. And I gave him a grade that he earned. And I got a call from, you know, the EOP, Affirmative Action, Underserved Committee person. He said, Victor, what the hell are you doing? This person's the first person in his family to go to school. He has a job. He's coming all the way up to Fresno from this rural community. He gave me the name. It's pretty close where I live. I said, I'm coming up from my rural community too. Yes, yes, but you gave him a D. If you, it, He's not going to get a 2.0. His scholarship, Pell Grant's in danger. I need you to change that grade. I said, I can't. He earned it. He said, well, you don't like him? You're... I said, I love him. He's a great guy. I try to tutor him. He comes in my office every afternoon. And that's why he didn't get an F, because we got him up to a D level. And I said, if he takes a class next semester, he can take it over. And we can get him up to a C level. But I'm not going to change a grade, and I'm not going to dumb it down. And of course, I was dumbing it down by requiring less reading. So I had a lot of those experiences. I haven't, you know, I had a... Right. Um, we had a wonderful dean from Spain, Luis Costa, and I had a student that every time she spoke, she had to self-identify. She said, as a Latina, as a Latina, and I say, please don't do that. Whether you, she goes, I just don't think that the Odyssey appeals to me because it's a culture I have no nothing in common. And I said, okay, then maybe you should learn about it. It might enrich you if you don't have anything in common. We don't just study things we have in common. I don't have anything in common with it either. It's 2,500 years old. And But she goes, well, as a Latina, and she just kept doing that. And so finally I said, Gracie, please don't do that anymore. It's alienating the students. It's putting emphasis on you rather than you know, on the material in class. I want to hear your views. So if I ask you a question... Why is Achilles sulking in his tent? And is it hurting the Achaeans? Or is it necessary to show the bankruptcy of this tribal system where Agamemnon is kingly, but he didn't deserve it based on his performance on the battlefield? Or this is part of the character development of Achilles? Or he's a tragic hero that he knows that he has to go out and save the Achaeans, but by doing so, he will die? Can we discuss it well as a Latino? And I'm not picking on Latinos. I just said, okay, if you do it again, I'm going to identify. And so she did it again. And I said, well, as a white man, as a white male, and she looked at me, and the class looked at me. I said, as a white male, I'd like to talk about Sophocles this week. And I did it for about a week as a white male, just to show you how absurd tribal politics. And I got all from this wonderful dean. And she, of course, wrote me up. The student complained that I was insensitive to marginalized people. He goes, Victor, 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 what the F are you doing? (laughs) I said, I'm not doing anything. And he said, why are you causing me this trouble? (laughs) He was a wonderful guy. He's just passed away now. I love him. He was one of the best people around. But he was kidding me, but he was serious. He goes, don't do this. And I explained how it arose. He said, you're not going to change students. You're not going to, are you going to fight this? This is the new reality. 
Everybody identifies by their tribe. Get with it. I don't like it any more than you do. He was he had a Spanish surname. He was from Spain, so he was protected. But well, and he said that is, to me. So that's where we are, and that's what's sad because it's where we've been, we, we, we where we've been for a long yeah, time. That's it the is, point. and that's exactly <laughs> yeah. what Martin Luther King said. He did not want to see. He did not want to see people talking about the color of their skin. It was the content of their character, and that if everything was on a level playing field, everything would even out. And what he meant was that in some areas, you would see African Americans overrepresented, Latinos underrepresented, whites overrepresented. It was just going to be there, but it was going to be based on meritocracy. And each different group would assimilate, they'd intermarry, they'd integrate, and race would be incidental, not essential to who you are. And we've just gone down a yeah. pre-civilizational tribal, tribal of fixation very right. confederate and it's going to result in the yeah the 116th drop rule is basically what right. native american gaming uh organizations use to ascertain whether or not bill smith is really 116th of a particular tribe that gets uh, you know gets dividends yeah. and when you apply to harvard or yale i think it's 18th to 116th although they don't say but the point I'm making is we're not meritocratic, and that's what people do in the Middle East. That's what people do in Latin America. That's what people do in Asia. And that's why in multiracial societies or multi-clannish societies, they don't function because right. you're always hiring somebody on basis other than their ability, proven ability in the past to do the work. And, and when you want to address overrepresentation, which can be of some problem for a meritocratic society, then you start at kindergarten. And so if you really cared about marginalized people that were not amply represented in medical school, you would go down to kindergarten and you would cut out all of the race-based therapeutic indoctrination and you would say as you would say, as many people were educated in my world, when I went to school, I was, I think there were seven of us that were not Mexican-American in West Salma. The teachers said, we're going to make you all successful. I mean, you had to speak perfect English, perfect grammar, perfect. And, and guess what? All of those students that came out of that school system who are in their 60s and 70s are very successful. They don't need any affirmative action. And that would be the goal. So instead, we're just doing, it's almost as if somebody wants to be a racist. If you said, how do we make America racist, right. race obsessed, and we make sure that people, uh, when they're admitted or have to have special standards because we feel they can't do the work in a racist condescending, we would come up with this system. Well, Victor, I don't ever want to have brain surgery but or any kind of surgery, but I sure as hell don't want to have it ten years from now, when the kind of as as this uh, guy was uh, uh, not alluding to, as he was warning, and as you've warned before, you know we're just going to have people uh, involved in very delicate best. What was once for the best and brightest will now be for you. Think you really think that Al Sharpton and Jory Reed and Professor Kendi, if any of them has a major oncology problem that they go and they go into a med major medical building and they say i want 
somebody operating on me who looks like me, or I want to know if this uh, sur this surgical team is diverse, or do they ask that question? I don't think they ask that question. I really uh, don't. And uh, really I, when I've had a, I think I went to three specialists this year in association with COVID. All of them were from India. All of them. And they were excellent. As far as I can tell, they were excellent. And I have no problem with that. I have no, I go, I've gone to Dr. Cha in Reedley, California. He's a Korean American. He's an excellent dentist. And he's all, he's got a, he's a medical doctor. He's an, orth, you know, dental surgeon. He's excellent. He's, when I had a catastrophic bike accident, he did implants. He did, he's just excellent. Do I care what his background is? Do I care there's more Korean or Japanese or Chinese dentist or orthodontist or dental surgeon than their numbers in the population? No, I don't. I could care less. And do I care that there's 40% 40, 40 Asians at UC Berkeley? I would like to see them 50% if they earn their slots. And if so-called white people who have a superficial resemblance from me can't do the work, I don't want a quota that says, wow, whites are 45%. They have to be 45% represented. I'm upset at Stanford about the 23% white, not because of the color of their skin. I don't care if there's 5%, if that's what they earn. But that's not the case. Not when you turn down 70% of the people who have perfect SAT scores. Right. Amazing. Well, Victor, there's a lot more to talk about um, today. You know, so many of your favorite people, Tony Fauci and Pete Buttigieg and others have been in the news of late. I know you talked about them on a recent podcast with Sammy, so we won't go over the, the uh, same territory again. But another favorite person, Michelle Obama, was out this past week, and we're recording again on the, on the 30th. And she talked about her, her decade of disdain for her husband. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about her and then get on to Jay Bacheria and some of the concerns he has for forthcoming epidemics. And uh, who knows, there may be time for another topic to discuss. But we'll get to all of these, some of these anyway, at least right after these important messages. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded 
January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. The happy home for the Victor Davis Hanson Show is John Solomon's website, justthenews.com. Go visit it. Speaking of visiting news uh, websites, visit victorhanson.com. That's where you can find all of Victor's writings and links to his appearances. Um, um, some I don't think there's much Fox, um, much of the, I shouldn't say all, but many appearances, uh, your appearances on other on other podcasts in particular. Um, much of what you, uh, uh, not much, a lot of what Victor writes is exclusive to the website, that website. And you're going to try and click on some of these pieces that he's written, and you're not going to be able to access them. You're going to see, oh, Ultra. Well, what's Ultra? Well, that's exclusive. And you need to subscribe in order to, to read it. My prediction or my assessment is that Victor writes the equivalent of two books a year uh, for of, of exclusive material for the website. So five bucks gets you in the door, $50 discounted for the year. You've got to do it. If you're a fan of Victor Davis Hanson's writing, you you really need to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, I write Civil Thoughts, a free weekly email newsletter for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. Why don't you sign up for it? It comes out every Friday. It's got a dozen to 14 recommended readings, stuff I've come across in the previous week. Hey, Intelligent American, I think you'd like to read this. Here's a link. Here's a, an excerpt. Um, you go to civilthoughts.com, sign up. It's Again, it's free. There's no risk, no list building. We're not selling your name. So uh, consider that. Victor, by the way, before I, we, we bring up Michelle Obama, I'm and speaking of you writing, and speaking of you writing books, I'm I'm making a prediction that you have a New Year's resolution, and that's to complete the writing of your next book, forthcoming book. And I bet you're going to be doing that in the, in the first few months of 2023. I have to. I, yeah, I had long COVID for eight months, and I got way behind. I got sort of brain fog and vertigo, and I thought each page I wrote the next day it didn't look very well. <laughs> well so I'm back on the track. I'm getting much better and um good. I could you take could you take one minute to tell us what what the book is about? Well I talked about it's about um you know most times when nations go to war it doesn't end in the complete destruction of the losing civilization. But sometimes it does. And the classic example is in Thucydides' history of the island of Milos. And he has a long, famous discussion called the Melian Dialogues, where they delude themselves into thinking. I think at one time, the Athenians, they scoff at them. The Greek word for uh, hope is opis. And they say, <laughs> you're relying on LPs, a dangerous comforter. The Spartans are right over the horizon. Maybe... They can resist and all this, and, and they're pretty cruel. And it's an argument for realism, I suppose, and the moral bankruptcy of realism as well. But that Melian attitude gets, why do certain 
states, why did Constantinople have to be completely ethnically cleansed of all Byzantines and the Byzantine Empire was gone on May 29th, 1453, Black Tuesday? Or why did Tenochtitlan, the entire Aztec civilization, die with the destruction of Tenochtitlan by Hernan Cortez from April to November of 1521? Or why did Carthage it wasn't enough that the Romans defeated Carthage or besieged it. Why did they wipe out? They probably killed over 300,000 of them, enslaved the rest, leveled the city. And what? why did classical Thebes, the scene of, you know, Oedipus Rex and Antigone and all the great myths and Greek folklore were centered on Thebes? And it was the site of the Theban hegemony and it produced people, you know, like Epaminondas the Theban. A lot of great Boeotian poets were from that area, Praxilla, Hesiod, etc. Why did they wipe it out in 335, Alexander the Great? And so it, it discusses what are the decisions that the besiege, are they realistic about the odds? Would they rather die on their feet than live on their knees, including their children? Do they delude themselves thinking there's always going to be Spartans that are going to come over the horizon and help us? Or do they, Carthaginians think, wow, the Numidians may flip and join us. Or maybe the Aztecs think, even though we've sacrificed thousands of young children from our allies, they're going to come and help us. Or maybe um, in the case of Constantinople, maybe Christendom will finally unite. The Pope is forced. Maybe there'll be more than just uh, 900 Venetians. And so the, you delude yourself. And then right. either you have weak commanders or how did you get yourself in that position in the first place that your entire civilization is synonymous, synonymous with one city, the collapse of the Byzantine back to Constantinople, the collapse of the Aztec Empire back to Tenochtitlan, the Theban Boeotian hegemony confederacy back to the city itself of Thebes. Right. And then what are the lessons from it? So then you look at, do we have such a thing as a one-bomb state? Could it happen in the modern world? I think it can when you have, we're fighting, we're hoping that Zelensky wins. And whatever our differences are about the strategy, I think most people see, rightly so, Putin as the aggressor, thuggish aggressors, killing people, reign of terror. But when he talks about nuclear weapons, he's not bluffing. I don't think he is. And if he gets an extremist, he may do that. And he's got the ability to destroy Ukrainian civilization as it is. I mean, it's already being rendered back to the Stone Age. And we, we forget that. There may be 100,000 casualties already. 90% of some of the major cities don't have power. 8 million people have fled. It's a right. complete dependency of the EU and the United States. And not too long ago, Mr. Rafanjani supported, uh, purportedly said that Israel, he liked Israel because half of the world's 9 million, Jew, uh, half of the world's 20 million Jews were in Israel. And therefore, it was a one bomb state. Does anybody really believe if Iran gets a bomb, it won't use it? And right. somebody will say, you know what, we may lose 30 or 40 Shia Persians, 30, 40 million, but we will be famous in Islamic history as the Shia, not the Sunni and the Persians, not the Arabs. We got rid of the Zionist entity. 
and it's possible. And there's a yeah. and so in the Taiwan, uh, right? It's possible. Taiwan is another example. It can cease right. to exist, and I think not just physically, but the culture of a free China. And the same thing, Mr. Erdogan the other day said what he thought about sending missiles into Athens after all of that 400 years of oppression and death and destruction from the Turkish occupation. And he's talking, he's flying 70, 80 uh, overflights into the Aegean. He's now talking about Samos and Rhodes and all the Dodecanese islands and the Northern Islands as maybe kind of not really Greek. Yeah. And maybe they should all be demilitarized and you can't fly up and intercept a Turkish jet. And if you don't like it, we will send a missile into Athens. And there's only, what, 12 million Greeks in the world right. that are, you know, in Greece. And we have the other countries, the Kurds, the Armenians. The Armenians are really endangered now with their neighbors. So what I'm getting at is there are wars going on and there are nations that are in vulnerable states like Carthage or Constantinople or Thebes and by studying these ancient examples of the mercy merciless invader and what they had and what they intend and one of the themes of the book I think will be the more stout and effective your resistance and in the case of Tenochtitlan or Constantinople it was very it was for many months the more, and in Thebes, even though it was only a day and a half, they killed 600 Macedonians. So no matter how fierce your resistance, it only whets the appetite for complete right. destruction because the besieger or the attacker feels justified that the resistance right. uh, was so fierce and they're going to be retaliatory. And do you believe them when the Romans say, Give us 200,000, all your armor, 200,000 suits of armor, all of your catapults. Give me, burn your fleet. And they do it. And they say, oh, by the way, now that you gave us all that, we have another demand. You've got to leave the city and destroy it and relocate, you know, 15 miles from the coast. At that point, they said, if they're going to do this, we might as well die and fight. And right. They fought for three years. So I'm trying to figure out when this rare occasion it's not very common in war but when it happens it's absolutely existentially the end and the book's called the end of everything wow i hope, I hope it works fasc it sounds fascinating victor i really look forward to this um hey let's talk about let, let's spend a, maybe a minute or two well how long you want my, my favorite person your favorite person michelle obama you know this past week I forget who the heck she was talking to, but it came out that, you know, um, yeah, she really couldn't stand her husband for a decade because they had kids and he was uh, you know, preparing his political future. Hey, she had a future, too, but kind of sidetracked because a child rearing had, had happened. Uh, but she spoke for forcefully and publicly about the disdain and it came off to me as almost contempt she had for her husband now it's not like a lot of people don't have contempt for barack obama but i thought it was a really kind of strange thing to come out publicly with and so why we want to talk about michelle obama but you know i i do think there's she has some potential future uh political role in america if she wanted she is beloved by so many 
on on the left and yet she's such a I, I don't know a nasty piece of work what you've never mind. never what's wrong with saying you've never been proud of your country or they always raise the bar every time we do the right thing they raise the bar on us yeah gosh never been proud of this country till barack ran this is a mean country and she she ventures out every once in a while jack from her calorama mansion her martha's vineyard mansion her new uh hawaii mansion never her chicago digs they still mm -hmm. run. and then she lectures the country about how unfair it's been to her and she's married to in her defense she's married to a narcissist and she knows that and she doesn't like that about him and she feels used that she was supportive etc and then she wrote this if she did write and completely and it wasn't partly far completely ghostwritten her memoirs that sold you know fantastically and uh she's got a lot of anger and I don't want to get into what their relationship is or what the tensions it are, but she's always, you know, the late Christopher Hitchens, I don't know if you read that article about her Princeton thesis. I knew him pretty well, and he sent it to me right. in PDF. And he said, I'm writing about this. Can you read it? And when I was half done, he wrote a column and said, it's written in a language that no one has ever seen before. But the thesis was all it was an attempt by someone who didn't master the vocabulary to in, import a Foucauldian postmodern uh power machinations uh structure post-structural type of vocabulary to explain how um the african-american alumni have to be involved to create the right mentality and watch out for patronization by the white it was all about you know it was, it was never i got a full ride to princeton yeah, right and i didn't have to have the same sat scores or gpas as other students and therefore i feel this country is trying to do something right and i'm going to try that i'm just going to concentrate on being you know, instead it was just full of this litany of anger and you did this and you owe me this, the thesis was. And it was suppressed for a while. And it's just, you know, it's just at some point, I, you know, if you want to go after Donald Trump's, Trump's transcript, fine, they went after his tax, well, then why don't you just release Barack Obama's Occidental transcript or his Columbia transcript or his right. Harvard Law? They don't do it. So it's this asymmetrical idea that just it just bothers people and yes when you look at the field i was on um last night on raymond arroyo he was substituting for laura and we were talking about the poverty he was asking questions about the pot i was with doug Schoen, the democrat clinton right. and he was also, talking about the yeah the poverty of the democratic field for 2000 24 in comparison to a Nikki Haley, who had a, a record of accomplishment as governor, or Mike Pompeo, who was, I think, a superb, superb Secretary of State, or the magnificent work of Ron DeSantis, or Mike Pence was a very good governor, and he was a good vice president. I know people will find that controversial, but he was. And Donald Trump had a wonderful four years of governance. 
And so when you look at that field, it's accomplishment, accomplishment, and you want it. And if you say, well, we want to widen it to women or minority, Christy Rome did wonderful as a governor. And so did Tim Scott. He's a wonderful senator. And he's got all sorts of great ideas about Senate. He's been authoring legislation. But when you look at the Democratic field, you're back to 2000, aren't you? You're back to 2020 on that stage. It was pathetic. Right. I had a choice between socialist, Elizabeth Warren, shrill, angry, you know, with a high cheekbones, faker. And then you had Bernie Sanders, the old Marxist, honeymoon in the Soviet Union. And then you had your identity politics people. You had Pete Buttigieg of no accomplishments other than being a mediocre mayor of South Bend. And then you had Cory Booker, Spartacus. And then you had Kamala Harris, who would spend a fabulous amount of money and get zero delegates. And you're going to add to that pool because they're going to be back. And you're going to add what? Stacey Abrams <laughs> and Eric Adams. So the point is, if you're in the Democratic field, it's not meritocratic. Uh, right. It's going to be based on identity politics. So if you were a left-wing version of Ron DeSantis and you had a successful record, uh, i.e. you were Gavin Newsom and you didn't destroy the state of California and send into flight 380,000 people a year, but... You 380,000 people were trying to get into California because you were a Pete Wilson, Ronald Reagan, Pat Brown, Democrat type governor, the elder Pat Brown, then you still wouldn't get the nomination because you're a white male. And he knows that. And I don't think he's going to run because nobody's going to nominate a white male. And remember how Biden got nominated. He was Picked up by Jim Clyburn, uh, Sammy and I were talking about that, and he was rescued from sure defeat because he was the face of moderation and non-craziness, and he was going to fake it out like he was a uniter and a moderate, and then in exchange for being elected, he was going to hand over the agenda to the Bernie Sanders, Obama, Elizabeth Warren squad wing. It's not the wing, it's the party, and that's what he did. But yeah, uh, yeah when you when you go down that route, Michelle Obama, I mean, if you're going to go that route, you, who who has greater name exposure? She does. And she will wink and nod and say, you get Barack back. They love Barack. I mean, over the Obama tenure, he lost 1,100 state and local important offices nationwide for his party. But it doesn't matter. And he he basically strangled any recovery from the 2008 meltdown. Right. And no need to talk about the hot mic. Tell Vladimir, I'll be flexible. He dismantled uh, missile defense in Eastern Europe and the Czech Republic and Poland would have been very valuable right now. And he let Putin just walk into Eastern Ukraine and Crimea. And that's exactly he kept the terms of the bargain. He said, give yeah. me space. I'll dismantle missile defense, I'll be flexible, but this is my last election. I need some space. And Putin behaved and he got reelected. Putin wanted him to get reelected. And for all the psychodramas of the first Trump impeachment, it was Obama who canceled offensive weapons. He wouldn't sell any javelins. It was Trump that did. Yet we impeached him for selling offensive weapons because he delayed them two weeks on that I don't, want to, mention that, I don't want to mention Lieutenant Colonel Vinman. I think I think about him and he cooked up the entire 
um, impeachment and use this quote unquote whistleblower as a very vicarious mouthpiece, but it all came from him. And then he Gosh. bragged that he was offered what secretary of defense for Ukraine. And you have the Ukrainian ambassador in interfering in the 2016 election in the right. Hillary fashion. And then I don't even want to get into Burisma. And well, so, yeah, I mean, Michelle Obama will be, there'll be a lot of pressure on her because this field, Kamala Harris cannot run a campaign. We know that she tried it. It was a complete failure. She can't be a national leader. We know that she can't even finish a sentence and she can't plead dementia like Joe Biden did. It's just a mess of rep repetition. She right. uses a vocabulary about 900 words. Unity is very important. And I'm going to speak about why unity is very important, because we have to understand that unity is very important because unity and important. <laughs> that's what you hear every single day. <clears throat> and then she whines. She does the Michelle Obama. This is not fair. I'm going to. Uh, this isn't fair that they assigned me to the border. And her husband, you know, gets angry and says that they give her the bad job so she doesn't get good press. She fires her staff. She's not going to be president. Right. Stacey Abrams is not going to be president. She's never won any statewide and much less national office. She's a she's a train wreck. She she even owes money on her campaign. She raised one hundred million dollars and still went through it like nothing. Right. And still lost lost at a greater margin than she did the first time. And then she still whined. And Cory Booker is Spartacus is never going to. And Pete Buttigieg is all we know about Pete Buttigieg is whenever there is a transportation crisis, Port of L.A. trains going into the Port of L.A., Southwest Airlines, 5000 canceled flights. He's not there. Yeah. He was there. He won't address it. He will talk about racism in the cloverleaf system or freeways. Right. But nothing about the problem. He is a total sanctimonious, self-righteous incompetent. And who else? So, yes, I think there's going to be, you know, who I used to talk to him and text him almost every evening. We had a really good relationship. The last was Rush Limbaugh. And one of the last yeah. things that Rush said to me was. Victor. There's going to come a time very soon where Michelle Obama will be, will be drafted to run. And he explained why. It's just what we were talking about. She had that memoir. It's best selling. She's sort of the political version of Oprah Winfrey. Right. A lot of independent women find her comfortable as long as she she obeys the golden rule. And when she was in the 2008 campaign and they unleashed her because they said she was a Harvard law graduate or brilliant and all this and she started in on they raised the bar on barack and me every time we played by the rules they raised the bar i've never been proud of this country it's a downright mean country i was shopping and you know some person oh yeah. asked me to get that that packaged and that was and when she starts that then right. they have to take the hook and yank her out and say don't say that because you don't know how that comes off to the independent voter. So if she can practice discipline and not go into her natural mode, she might. I don't well, think she's, she she's a, as you say, her natural mode is she's a hater. Actually, I think if she had been around in 385 BC or whatever it was, she, she would have been one of the people, generals, uh, you know, demanding the utter destruction of a city. Well, you can't she, talk about that because 
I'm sorry. It, it, it's considered <laughs> racist, but nobody wants to talk about people are people. And there are people in the white community, there are people in the Latino community, and there are people in the black community that are racially obsessed. And we know that Jory Reid is a racist. And Michelle Obama is racially upset, obsessed with racial differences and perceived slights and culpability about what she calls white folks. That's the term she used. She said it the other day, not too long ago. And so, yeah, I mean, she's racially obsessed. That's certain taboo subjects we know that we don't talk about. We don't talk about transgendered swimmers. If you do, your career is over with. We yeah. don't talk about the post spike in black teenage, middle-aged youth crime rate. We're in a national spiral that's disproportionate to that demographic in the general population. You can see it anecdotally on TikTok or YouTube, or you can look at the data from the F it's there. It's a black male youth crime rate. If you mentioned it, you are racially illiberal and you can't do it. So we all just don't talk about it. And we don't, and unless you're in the comments and when you don't talk about something in rational, then you get the racist out. Because if you look at any of these stories of a waffle house that swarmed or a shooting, and then they have the comment session section, oh, you ever notice oh Yeah, I do. I mean, it's right, out of, like it, right? it's right out of Dixie. It's yeah. racist. I mean, that's some of the worst stuff you can imagine stereotyping of African-American. And that's because of the repression. If you people would just report the news, don't try to suppress this particular rubric demographic. And then, you know, if this person is a white male, put a big full page picture of him, you know, just don't right. you just act normal. It, it, it'll all even out. People are people. But I, no, I tell you that when you censor climate change is another, if you climate denialist, another thing is if you suggest that 70% of mail-in early balloting cannot be verified at a level that's necessary to guarantee confidence in the electorate. And, you, and then all of a sudden you're a denialist. Well, you know who's a denialist, uh, Victor? Uh, Jay Bacheria. And and we, we've got to talk about him. we got a little time left in this podcast. And let's, let's um, get your views on something he said this past week right after these important messages. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. back with the Victor Davis Hanson show earlier this week. 
Jay Bracharia, who's the uh, great Stanford scholar. By the way, I I, I might have mentioned this on a previous podcast. Earlier this year, I I was out in uh, at Stanford and I and I had dinner with um, our great friend Scott Immergut and Andrew Robertson and Jay Bracharia was there and I'd never met him before and. I I could not I it could not meet a nicer guy than oh he's a wonderful uh, person soft spoken but very oh tough. yeah yeah and and the, recounting what happened but he recounted what happened to him personally uh, given the studies he had done on COVID early on was just you know I guess it would say shocking I shouldn't be shocked but it was it is shocking anyway of course he's been proven so right. He was on Fox the other night, and his concern now is lessons learned from this disaster. Victor, I know you read, you've told us every morning, you spend a goodly amount of time reading studies related to uh, uh, COVID in, in, in so many ways. And there, there is a there is a t- tremendous amount of stuff to be learned from this, how not to do this the next time, how not to be about containment and, sh- and lockdown and shutdown versus what we should have done. He was So Jay was on Fox bemoaning this the other, worrying about this the other night. Not when, when is the next, when the next pandemic comes and there probably will be some next pandemic. Uh, are we going to uh, repeat the screw-ups we've we've done thank you dr fauci and company or will we learn from them uh that he just expressed his 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 fear and the and the the segment ended but victor do you have any thoughts about um about jay uh about uh lessons learned and, and will we will we um do better next time yeah i i think part of my bewilderment about jay is that if you were empirical could use the old simile if you came from another planet and you looked at people who a were qualified in health policy and understood the economic and political ramifications of it who had some you know molecular biology biology expertise or they were immunologists or epidemiologists then you would say for all of those different fields i think the leaders on health policy are probably scott atlas and Virology, epidemiology, uh, virology, or uh, infectious diseases. Jay Bachari and John Yiannidis and Michael Levette, maybe, and and how cellular biology and diseases, and they're all at Stanford University, all at Stanford University, and yet they were all pariahs. They were all pariahs because they said things that were a true, but more importantly that dovetailed with what Donald Trump was angry about, that he felt that he had been hoodwinked and hijacked by Burks and Fauci and given into them, and their policies were proving disastrous, sort of down the, the Chinese model. And so what they're worried about is this, that here's what they warned about. They said the following, that get a shot but and get a shot and booster if you want to it's probably good because they lessen the severity of the disease there are certain cost to benefit things to be aware of if you're a young male maybe you should not you're not going to get severe you might want to hold off on the vaccinations maybe maybe not 
It's an open scientific question. Germany is now, I think, barred Moderna shots for people under 18. But they do have efficacy. But they're not going to stop you from being infected nor from you being infectious. They said mask if you're in close contact with people and there's droplets and you're in a hospital. A sur- wear a mask. That's why surgeons wear masks. If masks didn't work, a surgeon wouldn't wear a mask during brain surgery. They do for a reason. But that's a limited reason. If you're in your car, don't wear a mask. If you're in a room and you're not next to somebody or outside, you don't need to wear a mask. And there are downsides. Psychological, when children can't see faces, when you're a bank teller and somebody comes in and everybody's got a mask, etc. When you can't breathe and you're bringing in particles, if the mask is aggregating the virus, on the surface of the mask and constant, they pointed all of these cost of benefit. It was always cost of benefit with them, all of them. And then they said, if you shut down the economy, then you're going to have A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Economic downput, psychological problems, spousal familial abuse, suicides, drug and alcohol problems. And you're going to have lack of, if you don't, if you shut down the schools, the, the students are never going to recover. All of that, they told us. They were all right. And yet, when you see them now, why isn't anybody saying we, we were wrong, you were right? Nobody is. We're right back to, you know, a nation of Karens, quote unquote, where, you know, we have the mass patrol and and you've got to get, these universities are talking about mandatory, what, we had one booster, Fauci said one booster. And then he said he got it. You know, he said then another booster. And I think he got he got COVID. And then he Paxlovid or whatever it is. And he got that. And then it rebounded. He got it again. It came back. And now we have the third booster. Fine, get five of them. I'm not sure that that'll hurt your health. It could, but maybe it'll help you not die from it. But then we're not going. And then, you know, Jay and all these people said, let's take a and we talked just talked about that the last. Let's take an empirical view on things like ivermectin. New study, as we said last hour, shows you that it has efficacy and safety. Nobody would believe that, but it's a meta-analysis of sixty-nine studies, and there's all sorts of therapeutic agents that incrementally would help you fight COVID. And, you know, when I got the really bad case of COVID in May, and I got the syndrome of long COVID, I talked to a couple of doctors, and they were kind of unanimous. They said, well, you know, these are not cure-alls, but they're, they, they have a good safety profile. And I'm not advocating anything, but they said, you know, quercetin has some value. Pepsid has some value. And they named seven or eight. You don't have to take them all, but they may ameliorate, and they gave me links to scientific studies. But you don't get any of that, Jack, from this establishment. And so that's what they're upset about. We didn't learn anything. So if we have a new strain coming in from China, and it turns out to be virulent, I don't think it will, but we go back to the severity that we had, they're going to do the same thing again. They're going to leave Target and Walmart wide open. And they're going to go after every little small business person and shut down their flower shop, their shoe shop their flower, everything. And they'll leave, and then you'll say, just go to Walmart with 150 people in there and you can buy your flowers and shoes there, but you can't go into the shop. And then we're going to have the most strident, self-righteous, sanctimonious 
hypocrites. And we're going to see Gavin Newsom back at the French Laundry. We're going to see Nancy Pelosi back at her hairdresser. We're going to see Newsom palling around without a mask down with athletes in Los Angeles. We're going to see Whitmer's husband, you know, wanting his boat out on Lake Michigan or whatever it is. It's all going to happen again because we didn't learn anything from it. And we know we didn't learn anything because we demonized the people who warned us. Right. I haven't heard anybody say that Scott and Jay were right, except the people on the conservative side. But they were, and they were attacked mercy without mercy. So I think that's why he's worried that it's going to come, something like it will come again. And the Wuhan lab still exists. (laughs) It's still there. And you can believe that they are doing gain-of-function research, the Chinese communist way of thinking. It's, well, we screwed up this time. Next time we'll do better. And that's the benevolent view of what happened. I Well, we'll we'll see. That is... I'm on the dark view on that one. Victor, thanks uh, for all your You're suggesting that the People's Liberation Army had virtual control over the lab, Jack? I I feel that a that a um political party that doesn't didn't give a rat's ass about 50 million deaths in China over the, oh, since you know since they took over and whenever it was 1949 uh don't have a problem with the uh, uh, sp- spreading disease. If it kills some Chinese, so what? But if it really kills and destroys our enemies, it's a uh, it's a tolerable it's a tolerable. Are cost. you suggesting that for twelve days they allow people they knew were infected to fly into Europe, the United States, but they could not leave on direct flights from Wuhan, but they could not go from Wuhan to any other Chinese city by rail or plane? That's, that's, what, that's, that's what I'm suggesting. Yeah. <laughs> God Almighty yeah, so are you us. suggesting that no animal has been found in the wild with the SARS virus? Yeah, what is that? What is a pangolin even? I have no for yeah, no clue. Anyway, it's a primitive mammal, <laughs> like a platypus or something. Tastes, tastes like tastes like chicken. Uh, Victor, uh, thanks to our listeners for hanging in here with us uh, all year. I think we're almost on close to year three of of doing this podcast of various. Places again, justthenews.com is the formal home. Victor Davis Hansen is your official home for, for the things you do, Victor. Uh, so thanks for listening. Uh, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever platform, great. Uh, those on who listen via iTunes and Apple can rate the program there zero to five stars. Practically everyone gives this show five stars. Victor d- deserves 10, but five's the limit. Um, some people leave comments. We read them, and here's one, and it's titled "The Classicist: Three C's and More," and it's from Plat Mom. Uh, I thank the Lord for VDH, uh, Jack, and Sammy. I would have lost my mind these past two years without the common sense and wisdom, and the courage it takes to speak the truth. A movie which explains all the hypocrisy and doublespeak of the left is my man Godfrey. William Powell and Carol Lombard showcase the absurdity of the wealthy looking down on the forgotten man, the difference <laughs> being a chump really needs a job for dignity. Uh, you know, by the way, that movie, the script for, for that was written by um, a Maury Riskind. I didn't know uh, that. I've seen yeah, the movie. I, I like William Powell. He's wonderful. Oh, he's, he's terrific. Uh, he's Because uh, remember, his, his last... Well, his last role was um, 
oh my gosh now i can't remember it's the navy comedy with uh, uh mr roberts yeah um, he was... yeah he, he he's really good but uh, maury riskin was a great anti-communist and he he was in the, the original first issue of national review in 1956 he actually had two pieces and uh, alan riskin is his you may uh, have remembered his uh, son who was the editor for many years of of uh, human events but uh that's not the reason for liking my man godfrey but it is a great movie turner classic movies has it on every once in a while kind of recommend for people try to catch it um victor hey i hope you and uh mrs hansen and the great sammy wink and all our listeners have a happy new year even though people are listening to this 2023 has begun but as we record it's not there yet but I'm I'm very grateful to our listeners. I'm grateful to you for your friendship, Victor, and for all the wisdom you share. So will we? You and I will be back. I guess next year. Next year, we'll <laughs> see you next year, John. <laughs> see you next year, my friend. Okay. Another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thanks so much, folks. Thank you again, everybody. It's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore of every story. But this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, experts, politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey.